Hello and welcome to Scanner Day's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. I am Andre Kurenkov, a third year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab and the host of this episode. On this interview episode, you'll get to hear from Tom Hennigan, a member of the technical staff at OpenAI, working on the safety team. Tom, along with Jared Coplin, Moore Katz, and others, offered the recent paper, Scaling Laws for Autoregressive Generative Modeling. He completed his PhD in the physics department at Stanford, where he studied atomic motion and solids, advised by David Rees. Thank you so much, Tom, for making the time to be on this episode. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So our focus will be on your paper, which you co-wrote with many people at OpenAI, you can say right away, Scaling Laws for Autoregressive Generative Modeling, which just came out a few weeks ago, uh, following up on a few other papers from OpenAI, uh, including language models of few-shot learners, which famously introduced GPT-3, and also Scaling Laws for Neural Language Models, which came out also this year. Before we dive into any of the details, uh, how about I just let you provide kind of a summary of uh, what the paper is about and what are its main conclusions? Yeah, so, you know, I think a lot of um, the field of machine learning is focused on getting state-of-the-art results. And so people are trying to find ways of tweaking things to improve loss, accuracy, or whatever their uh, metric of choice is. Uh, to to get a new state-of-the-art result. And a lot of that happens sort of on the edge of um, technological progress or what's possible, making a model a little bit bitter, bigger, adding a little bit more data, um, those kinds of things. And so I think I, I view this as a way of uh, kind of trying to, the focus of this work is trying to kind of zoom out and say, okay, well, you know, what is what are the trends in uh, performance look like? Not if I just, you know, increase the data set or, you know, make things two times bigger or even 10 times bigger. But what if I look over, you know, something like five orders of magnitude? Is there some sort of macroscopic trend uh, that's happening uh, there that might be uh, informative? And um, somewhat surprisingly, we've been finding that um, in the case of measuring the uh, test loss, uh, it seems that the test loss as a function of one of either data set size or the amount of compute you invest in training or model size um, increases at, or the loss decreases with uh, power law plus constant offset trend for any of those three things so long as you're not bottlenecked by the other two. So for instance, if you have plenty of data and you have lots of compute, so you can train till convergence, uh, loss as a function of Model size seems to be uh, power law plus constant offset for uh, transformers. Uh, we first saw this in language, as you mentioned in um, our paper, uh, uh, neural scaling scaling laws for neural language models. But um, the emphasis of this paper was seeing if that generalized to to other domains, and and it seems like uh, that is the case. Um, I see. Yeah, thank you for that uh, great summary. Yeah, I, I was just looking over figure one. And as you say, the idea here is that you do this for a few different types of models. So you do this, uh, I think, for images, for language, for text to image uh, tasks, image to text, video. And if I understand correctly, you have the same kind of architecture, the transformer, uh, transformer architecture, which is also the basis of G GPT-3. 
And so you apply the same uh, model with the same task of um, with the same loss of cross entropy. And so with kind of the same constant across different types of data, you uh, get this parallel relationship, which is basically saying that uh, as you change one of these variables of, let's say, for instance, compute, uh, for every order of magnitude, you see a sort of linear decrease in the loss. Uh, is that a correct uh, description of the main outcomes? Yeah, so I guess I would say um, uh, the if you uh, increase the compute by a factor of 10, you always see the same fractional decrease in the loss. But how big that fractional decrease is, whether it's 50% or 30% or whatever it might be, and I'm, I'm making those numbers up, by the way, those probably aren't the actual ones, uh, uh, depends on the domain. Um, and so it's, a, it's a, a, a power law relationship, so it looks linear on a, on a log-log plot, just to, just to be, I know, it's a little persnickety, but just to get that right. <laughs> of course, yeah, it's important to get the details. And maybe now we can dive into a bit of the details. So uh, you also have, in describing results, a pretty interesting idea of reducible and irreducible loss. And so this parallel relationship, uh, I think the main results are for reducible loss. So can you try and explain uh, to listeners uh, what are these reducible and irreducible loss and uh, how you get those? Yeah. So, um, so we were, we've been finding that the relationship between the loss and compute or model size or data set size, whichever of those three it might be, is a power law plus constant offset fit. Um, and so if for those uh, familiar with um, information theory, there's actually a really, uh, that suggests this kind of really nice interpretation that um, the constant in that power law plus constant fit. So the, the value you're approaching as you go to infinite data, infinite compute, infinite uh, model size is sort of the, the true entropy of the data uh, you're trying to model. Um, it is the, the sort of tr the, the best, uh, lowest uncertainty, uh, you know, uh, a perfect model of that, of that data could achieve. Um, whereas the power law component, so you have a constant, that's the constant, the additional power law component is the quote reducible loss, which is the, the component of the, of the loss that can be learned and actually represents the, the KL divergence, uh, the Kolbeck library divergence between the, the, the model's distribution of the data and the, the true di data distribution itself. Mm -hmm. I see. So if I understand correctly, basically it's saying uh, irreducible loss is even if you had the perfect model that could perfectly learn everything from a training set, uh, just due to the nature of the data, it can't get to zero loss because there's some amount of randomness that's inherent and you're never going to overcome it. And so you can, you can find, to some extent, this irreducible loss, and that becomes a constant offset uh, in your power law relationships. So on the, on the graphs, there's a line, that's log, log, linear. And so uh, what you're plotting there is the irreducible loss, which, uh, or sorry, the reducible loss, which doesn't include this uh, impossible to get away from irreducible loss. Is that yeah, right? That's exactly right. And, and what we're 
suggesting is that perhaps the the reducible loss is really the important quantity uh, here is sort of telling you how close you're getting to uh, modeling the true distribution of the data. And yeah, sort of if I can uh, give an anecdote of how I sometimes think about the irreducible loss, say say the task for language. So in, in this case, these are autoregressive transformers. So you're just trying to predict what the next words are going to be. If I uh, read the first chapter of a murder mystery, uh, no, no one in the earth, on, on, no one in the world could say with 100% certainty that they knew who the murderer was, that they knew it was, uh, you know, Professor Plum in the study with the candlestick. Um, they would have some probability distribution over uh, who the likely uh, murderer was, and there's just some uh, intrinsic uh, limit to how how calibrated or how how good you can make that predict. How sorry. There's a limit to how accurate you can accurately you can make that prediction, and uh, so that represents the irreducible loss. So that's sort of like uh, unachievable to do better than that. So perhaps what's the really important metric that we should focus on is the is the component the component of the loss that can be learned. So the reducible loss. Great. Yeah, that uh, hopefully uh, is clear to re readers. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and diving again a little bit more into the details, I think there's a few main kind of quantities uh, or quantitative results you have, and those are uh, for loss as a function of model size, loss as a function of compute, and then also you have something quite interesting, I think, which is the optimal uh model size as a function of compute, which I think you call an opt C for a given compute budget, uh, finds the optimal model size. And you also show that this optimal model size can accurately be modeled as a pure power law. So can you uh, just tell us a bit more about these different uh, quantities and, and how consistent they are and yeah, what are the main kind of exciting things for you there? Yeah. So first, uh, to just briefly describe what I'm, what we mean by the optimal model size for a given compute budget. So you could imagine that if you, um, use a very small model, um, you, and invest a lot of compute in it. So you train it for a very long time. Um, the loss will go down only so much because, uh, your model capacity is limited and a small model can learn, uh, only so much. Um, but in contrast, if you use an exceedingly large model, um, and invested, say, the same compute budget, uh, you might only be able to take one step because you have so many parameters and need to do uh, so many floating point operations that you're only able to look at one batch of data. And it's, it's hard to imagine that a model could learn much by only looking at one bat batch of data. So for a given compute budget, there is some uh, Goldilocks region in between, uh, Goldilocks choice of, of model size where... Um, you're able to look at enough data for the uh, loss to drop significantly, but it's sort of uh, before the loss starts to level off and asymptotically approach uh, whatever the converged performance is going to be. Um, and so you can, using these results, you can uh, extract this for the trans, again, for a decoder only transformer and these different domains, images, videos, uh, math, language, and uh, a surprising thing is that uh, it looks like the optimal model size as a function of compute budget is a power law. And, and not only that, but the power laws are surprisingly similar uh, for 
all these, you know, seemingly to me at least, uh, pretty different domains. Uh, all of them have an exponent that's right around 0.7. Now, and when I say similar, I mean some of them, you know, the actual values might be different by an order of magnitude. And so, but it, uh, when you look at it on the log log plot, uh, you know, these lines are seem to be uh, all almost on top of each other, which is, uh, yeah, it came as a real surprise to me. And it feels like it wants to tell us something about, uh, yeah, I don't know, some, some theoretical thing that we don't quite understand yet, which I, which I think is exciting. Definitely. Yeah. It's very interesting to see these sort of trends across different data types, which I guess is, is a whole kind of exciting thing about the paper. Um, moving on to a little, uh, slightly more specific detail, uh, which I found interesting, you uh, say in a paper that when generative image models are fine-tuned for ImageNet classification, you find a power law for classification loss versus model size. So again, basically it's saying that for if you increase the model size by 10, you get some fractional decrease, you know, 10, 20%. Uh, for classification loss consistently, which is pretty cool. You can basically do better and better. Uh, but a detail here is that um, that happens even beyond the model size where you approach the irreducible loss for generative modeling. So you can go beyond irreducible loss for generative modeling. And here you also say that you conclude that the approach to the irreducible loss does not necessarily indicate diminishing returns for presentation quality or semantic content which is interesting. So the, the point, if I understand correctly, is that you might interpret uh, the power law as being diminishing returns. Uh, basically, uh, mm -hmm. as you increase by 10, so you go from million to billion to trillion, you get the same return every time, right? Uh, which maybe is bad because that means that, you know, once you get to billion, it's very hard to get to trillion to get another 10%. So can you speak a bit more about this ImageNet classification and the question of if this uh, indicates diminishing returns? Yeah. So I, I think for, for me, this relates to uh, the, the constant in that parallel plus constant um, equation, and uh, which, is, as we said earlier, corresponds to the, the irreducible loss. So if, if you were looking at the reducible loss, then uh, what you said would be true. It might be the case that every time you 10x uh, your investment in compute or model size or, or uh, whatever it might be, uh, maybe you would uh, improve your, decrease your loss by another uh, 10% or 20% or whatever it is. Um, but actually, when you have the power law plus constant offset fit, uh, those, even that fractional return begins to diminish because you be begin approaching the irreducible loss and asymptotically approaching that. And so it might be the case that you're increasing your model size by 100 times or 10 times. 10 times or 100 times, and the loss is only decreasing by, you know, maybe 1% or 0.1%. Um, and so from that, uh, if you uh, weren't looking at these macroscopic trends, you might conclude that, oh, well, uh, the, these, I'm, as I'm increasing my model size, my loss isn't going down by very much. So I, I, you know, think my model isn't really getting any better. And my downstream past performance is also probably not improving. But, but actually, that's not the case. The uh, as we see here, when we fine tune it for the classification objective, um, the performance continues to improve in a smooth power law uh, kind of way, both for the classification loss and for the classification error rate. Um, and so I, I think this again suggests that maybe the important quantity is not the 
total loss, but specifically the reducible loss. Because if you were, if you did that same, looked at that same trend, but you were looking instead of at the total loss, the reducible loss, the irreducible loss, excuse me, uh, you'd be see that that was consistently uh, decreasing by 10% every decade. Um, and so that would maybe be a better indicator of what sort of downstream task performance you should be expecting. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, yeah, I'm curious in particular about emotional classification because this is a pretty concrete task we can focus on. And, uh, you know, to some extent, you could say matters and products and so on already that uh, image classification for listeners who don't know is image classification saying what is in this image. Mm -hmm. And a lot of online APIs exist to do it. So uh, I would imagine that the uh, companies providing these APIs care about performance and want to try and do it as better as possible. And so it's very interesting that you have this parallel of as model increases, classification uh, also uh, improves by some consistent-ish uh, number. And additionally, you have, I think, even more interesting results here. So you have something that others have also shown to some extent, I think, that as you go to bigger and bigger models, uh, and here you are pre-training them on this generative task of uh, you know learning representations. Then you fine-tune them for classification, and you find that um, larger pre-trained models fine-tune significantly faster. So you need to look at less data to achieve better results. Uh, so yeah, in some sense, it's easier to optimize larger models, uh, and they actually, actually perform better uh, over time. So yeah, I'm curious if you can highlight some results that you think maybe from a pragmatic perspective, from like an operational perspective of wanting to, if you're building a product, if you're building a neural net to do some tasks, I think this is one of the results that seems interesting that it's easier to optimize larger models. Maybe for ImageNet, you just go big. Uh, are there any other results like that uh, working from this that you think uh, you could highlight? Yeah. So, uh, I guess I would, I would start by just caveating that, uh, the way we, um, do the, the training is, uh, you know, these models, I'm, we're not achieving anything close to soda, right? So like, uh, I don't know on this graph, the classification error rate is maybe, uh, 30% or something, which is not exactly a state of the art for ImageNet these days. But, um, but I, I think what you're alluding to is like maybe these macroscopic trends might, uh, the, the results here do maybe suggest some, practical tips and tricks that could be used for, um, for, for practitioners. Um, and I think the, the point you raised about, uh, bigger models being more sample efficient is something that shows up again and again in, in, in these, in these works. Um, and so, uh, and I think that the generative pre-training, um, did it, we can see that it appears that generative pre-training did, uh, give these models, um, re did result in these models having good representations that transferred well to then the downstream task classification and that they picked up on that classification task pretty quickly with relatively few samples, especially for larger models. Um, and, but I guess one other practical point is you might think, oh, well, like then a bigger model must be, is just the way to go. But I, uh, a practical point for many companies is that um, a lot of their compute cost is not in training, but also at inference time. And uh, a bigger model uh, will cost you more at inference time. So that's just uh, uh, 
that so you have to weigh those two things against each other. If if you're um, if you're, all of your cost is in training um, and you're not worried about the cost in inference time, then uh, indeed it can in make many instances make sense to use a larger model. But if you're primarily constrained by inference costs, uh, you may be uh, more frugal with how big of a model that you want to use. I see. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and speaking of that, um, again, still on the images, one thing I found interesting is you have a section here called an inconsistency and in compute and data size scaling laws. So for some data, and I think here it was particularly images, uh, you showed that actually here, as you scale the data set size or the amount of data seen by the model, it's not quite a parallel. So you get a linear relationship for a while, and then it sort of tapers off, and you get almost like an L shape uh, for loss as a function of data set size. And that's, I think, something that's quite interesting also for practitioners. Um, if you say a company and you're collecting data, you want to know how much more data to collect. Uh, are you going to get more payout for additional data? So a law here would be very interesting. Uh, so can you speak to yeah what you found with respect to loss as a function of data set size and maybe this inconsistency that you have? Yeah. So um, for... Uh, we, we found that the loss as a function of data set size was a power law plus constant offset. And so the, the L shape you're referring to, um, the, the bend in the curve on this log log plot is a result of um, that power law approaching the, what we're calling the irreducible loss, uh, which is causing it to asymptote towards this constant value, which is the constant in the, uh, in the power law uh, plus constant. Uh, equation and we think represents the the irreducible loss and um, the inconsistency you're alluding to is something that uh, we saw for images uh, here uh, in previous work we also saw it for for language where um, if, so uh, if I can try to describe it it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a mind warp but so you can plot uh, the loss you're going to achieve as a function of data set size if you allow the model to look at as many epochs as it wants. Um, now, if you're limiting the data set size, eventually it will overfit. And so here we're just using early stopping uh, to tell us what the best achieved loss uh, was. So that gives you one curve of loss as a function of data set size. Another way you can get loss as a function of plot loss as a function of data set size is to um, look at the loss that a model would get if you let it look at that data set size, but only go through one epoch. Uh, so you only let it look at each example once. And you could do that for a handful of different uh, data set of a handful of different model sizes. And so uh, the smaller models will plateau at larger values of the loss because they're uh, constrained by how many parameters they have. And then as bigger and bigger models uh, will have lower and lower loss. And as we spoke about earlier, they seem to be also be more sample efficient so, efficient, so the loss drops faster. What's interesting is that, uh, and we weren't able to actually see them intersect, but if you extrapolate those two trends out, it looks like they're going to intersect, uh, which would suggest that at some point, yeah, I, I don't know, you can interpret it as you will. I think, uh, you know, I, I might guess that at some point um, you were going to be, yeah, maybe, maybe in the long run, it's going to be the, this 
sort of loss as a function of data set size is going to be constrained by the multi-epoch case, where actually after the model has seen uh, some amount of data, uh, some fraction of the epoch, that looking at more is is actually giving diminishing returns. Um, but it, it's hard to say. I, I I have to say it's a it's an interesting question. I don't I don't I don't know what's going to what's going to what would happen uh, as uh, if you were to go to uh, uh, larger models with with more data. I see. Oh, and okay. I think I I mischaracterized it a bit. Uh, so the inconsistency is basically if you plot both of these linear parallel lines of loss as a function of data set and loss as a function of compute, they are slightly different slopes, which means yeah. that at some point, one of the slopes has to, um, the uh, lower slope, which is compute, will have to maybe overcome or overtake the data slope. So that is interesting, as you say. Yeah. It's Then um, I think, yeah, as you say, I think, Kind of, they, it's there's not too much research of this vein. Uh, there's starting to be more of it, and you do cite uh, a lot of irrelevant literature. But these kind of microscopic or macroscopic trends uh, that are empirical but seem to hold are definitely interesting to to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think for me, you know, coming from physics, uh, you know, you see, you see a power law and you think, uh, oh, this, it feels like it wants to tell us something, you know, and I think there's a lot about uh, AI and machine learning and how neural networks are working so well that we don't have a good grasp on theoretically. And so, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe results like this will help us uh, make, some, make some progress in that, in that direction. Indeed. Actually, uh, I think now maybe uh, is a good time to acknowledge, once again, this is a big team project, whereas... Yeah. I think, I don't know, two dozen offers, uh, a large number of offers. Yeah. And uh, maybe, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious if we can zoom out a bit from the results. And can you tell us a bit of what was involved in getting this paper together? I mean, infrastructure-wise, experimental design-wise, all the different details. What are some of the things you can think of that were really big efforts on this? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, we there's... Um, you know, a fair amount of um, engineering that goes into um, building these models and to making uh, making it possible for us to to train them. Um, there's a huge uh, there's a huge effort, um, and you know, I, it would th this work really wouldn't have been possible without all of the um, people really working out the details there to make that make that happen. Um, and you know, I think I've I, I was also fortunate to have. Um, really great um, colleagues and mentors in terms of uh, research direction who, who thought uh, these were interesting ideas to pursue. And uh, I think it wasn't as obvious to me and maybe at the beginning of the project, but in hindsight, I think it's uh, really, really cool. And I, I'm, I'm glad, glad we did it. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I feel uh, pretty lucky. I, I do feel like it was a pretty collaborative effort and, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. It was a great experience. Great to hear. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, when there's such a big team, it's, it's good to hear that uh, it kind of all came together. And, and I do think, yeah, you got some very interesting results. Now, uh, speaking a bit about architecture and, and sort of uh, results, I was also wondering about some of the things you might do next or that you thought of doing. 
as far as some of these empirical studies. So one thing that I find interesting is um, you evaluate here this transformer architecture and you show it for different model sizes. And yeah, I wonder if, if you've thought about maybe going and evaluating these strands for, uh, let's say, programmatic design choices. So one thing I was thinking is for very large models, uh, maybe it's not usable at uh, deployment time. So people would use like pruned models, you know, or mm -hmm. optimized models. And there to be interesting, do these trends hold or do these pruned models inherently perform worse? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I was wondering, uh, kind of what sort of things were you thinking of perhaps looking into next, possibly including prune models or, or anything else really? Yeah, I think, um, I think pruning is, is, uh, is definitely an interesting uh, research direction here. You could, you could ask, you know, uh, what, how, how is this, how are these, uh, trends changed, uh, as, as I prune the model after the fact more and more, uh, and there's a lot of practical, uh, <laughs> knowledge to be extracted there. Um, I, I think that would be interesting. Um, you know, you know, I, I think, uh, one obvious thing is we, uh, only did decoder only transformers here. Um, and in many of these problems, that's probably <laughs> not the, best architecture to be using language being an exception of course uh transformers have worked uh you know maybe it's not the best you know the decoder only transform you know obviously there's other things out there like BERT and those sorts of things but something in that vein works seems to work quite well for language but for uh generative image modeling uh you know the decoder only only transformer probably doesn't have is not the best choice of architecture um and in our prior paper on the uh, neural sc scaling laws for language modeling, we looked at uh, comparing the trend for the transformer and the LSTM. And I, I think that was informative in that um, if you looked at loss as a function of model sets, model size, they seem to have roughly the same exponent, but in the power law, but the uh, LSTM had a different multiplicative constant in front of the power law. So on a log-log plot, there were parallel lines, but uh, at every point, the LSTM had higher loss than the transformer. And so seeing if, uh, and so that, I mean, that's another thing that's surprising that the two exponents were the same, but then uh, naturally, another natural question is to wonder if we use something more natural for generative image modeling than a decoder-only transformer, if we use maybe uh, pixel CNN or something in that vein. Um, would it have the same exponent and be offset in the same way? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty curious about that. Exactly. I was actually going to ask that next is if you're thinking of going to other architectures like convolutional neural nets. So uh, <laughs> glad to hear that sort of also to you the obvious next step. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's pretty much all I had to ask. There's a ton of you know, interesting details in the paper. So again, just to mention the title is scaling loss for autoregressive generative modeling. You can find that on archive and, and take a look yourself. It's, it's quite readable despite, you know, a little bit of technical, I think it's it, the empirical results are pretty easy to get. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention or highlight from the paper we haven't uh, touched on yet? Yeah, I, I think those are the big things. I mean, I, I guess I would echo what you just said, which is that this is this paper is primarily focused on uh, empirical results. 
Um, you know, we do make some conjectures about what, uh, about how to interpret some of them. Uh, I'm excited about, uh, uh, you know, others pursuing, um, uh, theoretical work related to this to, um, have some ideas for why all these things might be power laws. Um, my colleague on the paper, Jared, and, um, uh, some of his, one of his students has worked on, um, trying to, you know, a, a theory for, uh, as sort of a, a first pass at a theory for why this might be the case. Um, but I think there's, you know, a lot of more interesting stuff to pursue, not only in this line of empirical work, but also seeing if we can, uh, extract some theoretical understanding from it, uh, that I'd be excited about. Definitely. Yeah. That'll be very exciting to see. Well, in that case, uh, I think we've got pretty much a good overview of the paper. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode, Tom. Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure. And thank you so much, listeners, for being with us on this episode of Scan Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find articles on similar pop, uh, topics to the one we discussed today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter at scanatoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be sure to tune in to our future episodes.